Welcome to America's Commercial Real Estate Show, your source for market intel, forecasts, and strategies. Hello, I'm Michael Bull. Thank you for being with us. This segment is brought to you by my company, Bull Realty, for customized asset and occupancy solutions. Give me a call or an email. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. Well, today we have, I call it a special show for you. It's a little different. Uh, you know, I've been in this commercial brokerage world for three decades and closed over six billion in, in transactions. And some of my uh, show fans say, Michael, why don't you just do more shows where you're sharing some insight with folks? So today I thought I would share three myths, three myths of commercial real estate. And, uh, you know, and these are myths that it might be helpful to you if you're a principal, you own properties, you manage properties, you invest in real estate, or you're in, in any capacity where you help people in that regard. And it's interesting because you might find that you disagree with what I'm telling you, uh, that you might have a contrarian view. Or it may be that, you know what, I totally agree with you, Michael, uh, and, but this may help you with some discussions when you're dealing with tenants, buyers, owners. We're dealing with folks about these three topics. And so let's, let's get started. So the first one I have is, here's the myth, renewal options are positive for my investment property. Let me explain that. We've all seen the brokers, and, and we've done it too as brokers. Hey, it's a five-year lease, and there's two five-year options to renew. Isn't that fantastic? No, I get it. Uh, it you do want to promote that if you're selling a property. We do it. Um, but whose option is it? Is it really good for the owner of the property? Uh, let's explore it a little bit. Look, when a tenant has an option to renew, whose option is it? It's typically the tenant's option to renew. So they have the control that they can negotiate with the landlord up before the renewal. And if you're a tenant, yeah, good for you. Uh, and you can fall back on your option to renew. Uh, usually they're at set rates and terms so that you can beat on the landlord all day and try to get the best deal you can. And at the end of the day, even if you make them mad, you don't want to do that. Uh, you can just exercise your renewal option. Um, and here's some of the challenges. You've all seen the investment property values where if you have a single tenant or a property with a, uh, with a significant tenant in it and their lease has 10 years or more term, great value, right? Um, five to seven years, maybe a little less value, right? Under five years, you're starting to get, hey, maybe there's less value. You start getting two one year left two years left. Now the value can be, in a lot of cases, significantly reduced. And why is that? Well, and how do the options play into that? Well, one, if the tenant has an option to renew and it haven't, they haven't exercised it yet, and you're near that end of that uh, lease, well, you don't know, neither does your lender, neither does your buyer if you're selling it, uh, neither do you as an asset manager know if they're going to renew or not. So you can't really take any actions with the property. You can't lease it to someone because you don't know that it's going to be available. Uh, it's hard to sell. You can sell it, but the value could be reduced because the buyer that you would talk to doesn't know if 
the tenant will be there if they will renew. So there's a renewal risk, which can impact the value negatively. Also, you can't sell the property to an owner-occupant either because they don't know if they'll be able to occupy it. So you kind of get into that no man's land where the values can be very questionable. So what, what would I do? What would I recommend? Well, one, if you are a landlord or an asset manager and you're working on leases and proposals, I wouldn't just flippantly give out these options to renew because they can really hurt your value down the road and your planning of the property. Uh, so if you're going to give a renewal option to a tenant, understand the value there, understand what you might be doing. Uh, also, if you're going to give a renewal option to a tenant when you're, uh, when you're doing a lease, uh, think about trying to get as much notice as possible, right? So if you can get 12 months notice at least, then at least you don't have that last year. What I hate to see is the 60-day right to renew, the 90-day right to renew, uh, the six-month right to renew. And boy, you don't know till you get to the very end if the tenant's going to renew or not for sure. Um, now, if you're on the other side of the equation, uh, your tenant, um, these renewal options are fantastic. They give you the leverage we talked about. And you want all the options you can get. You want an option to purchase if you can get it. You want an option for, uh, to at least contiguous space. Uh, you want an option to buy. You want an option to renew as many options as you can get. Now, you, if you ask for too much, you'll get nothing, all right? You had to be careful if you're a tenant or a tenant rep uh, about asking too much. Uh, we just had a, a case last week where a tenant rep came in um, after a proposal was provided to an existing tenant. And the tenant, came, the tenant rep came in and asked for so much uh, that the landlord said, no, forget it. I don't even want to rent to that tenant anymore. Uh, move on to, to, new, to, to new tenants. And it just shut down the negotiation because they asked for too much. So uh, think about what you're asking for. But I think for renewal options, just really think about it. We've had situations where uh, tenants didn't have renewal options and we're repping the landlord, now the landlord has a lot more leverage because you can have it on the market trying to get new tenants um, and the tenant could lose the space. Um, so they could be very concerned and give you more leverage to get a renewal earlier uh, or to get a renewal early and then also to you know, get a better deal. Um, and if you're, um, if you're a tenant and you don't have a renewal option, then you want to think about, hey, maybe I need to get after this earlier and make sure I secure the space. All right, so that's my first myth, is that uh, renewal options are positive for an investment property. I think usually, typically, it's not really that positive. It's like, because it's so one-sided and gives the tenant so much leverage. All right, all right, so what's my myth number two? All right, uh, this is one I've dealt with over the years a good bit. Here's the myth. Backup contracts are a waste of time. <laughs> backup purchase and sale agreements, a waste of time. Well, let's think about the different parties involved in a backup purchase and sale agreement. Why should a buyer want a backup sales agreement? Isn't that a waste of time and money? Well, not necessarily. Uh, so think about the advantages. One, it could be pretty easy or cheap and, and or inexpensive or, or free to get a backup contract. So if the first primary contract doesn't close, you become a primary contract. And what you do is you avoid that seller going back to the market. We have situations as brokers in our shop 
where we get a buyer and, and, and how, when do you know for sure a transaction is going to close? When it's closed, right? You really don't know for sure until then. Uh, so a backup contract can kind of get you in place. Uh, so if that deal falls through, it just doesn't go to market. Now you're competing with all the other buyers. It just kind of rolls over to you. Um, so think about the advantages there. And then think about, and, and I can give you an example there. So I had a, um, an investor come to me and engage me to help him. He was an architect and he was a commercial real estate broker. He found an apartment complex that he thought was a good deal. So Michael, can you represent me to acquire it? And so when I got involved and looked at it, I liked the deal, uh, and it was under contract. And I told my client, the buyer, look, let's write a full price contract as a backup. And he's like, wasn't that a waste of time and money? It might not be. Uh, let's, let's do it. So we did it, got it in place. Well, the first contract was a, a, a team of three attorneys buying the complex. And what do attorneys do? They keep us safe, right? They protect us. Uh, and uh, so, you know, they found central problems you know, with their either a partnership or the property, and they didn't buy it. So we got the backup contract. And then when we started doing the due diligence, my client decided, you know what, I don't know if this is the right deal for me. Um, so I said, well, uh, I think it's a good deal. Um, why don't we just see if we can resell it? So he said, okay. And so I went out and found a buyer to buy the property from him. So my client that engaged me in the beginning closed on the property because he had a backup contract. It, it came into place. The seller couldn't do anything, uh, take it back to market. I sold the property for him. So he closed three days later, sold it to someone else. Um, and my client in that particular deal profited a million dollars after any cost or selling cost to me or to any other, other cost. So he net owned a property three days, made a million dollars profit. Um, and because he had a backup contract. So I think, and I've been a backup buyer on, on a contract before as well, where I had a contract to buy a property and I was very young. The primary contract didn't close. They called me, hey, it didn't close. You're, the, you're now the primary. I went and got my loan approved and called them back to close. And they said, well, we've got a problem. I said, what is it? He said, well, we're under contract with you. We know that. We're also under contract with the previous buyer. We extended and gave them a contract. And I said, well, why don't you do that when you knew you had a contract with me? They said, well, we've thought since you were an agent and, uh, and a commissioned agent and you were only 22 years old that you wouldn't get approved to buy the property. Um, so they had a predicament uh, and had two buyers under contract. So I said, all right, well, just pay me to go away. And they paid me to go away. So I've just seen over and over times where as a buyer, a backup contract to be a great thing. What about as a seller? You want to bother with, with all of that? Why don't you just say, well, we'll call you when, when our deal, uh, if, if our deal falls apart? Well, here's some benefits for the seller. One, it really shows the primary buyer that there's, you can tell them, look, there's a backup contract. I'm not talking about we have people interested. We have a backup purchase and sale agreement. That's why you see um, astute buyers put in their uh, purchase LOIs and contracts a request from, to the seller that they take it off the market, that they don't negotiate anything, including backups. And an astute seller may say, well, we're going to go ahead and continue to work on getting a backup buyer in uh, contract in place. Um, so now if the primary buyer knows there's a backup, 
the seller just has a better chance of this deal closing on time without retrades. Um, and it just really puts a lot of confidence with the buyer that, hey, someone else wants this. I need to be timely about doing this. And it can really motivate the buyer. So that can be a real benefit for a seller. What's the benefit for a broker? Broker has got a deal under contract. Does he really want to fool with another buyer, another contract, and, and negotiate that? Well, here's the benefits for the agent. Well, one is what we just talked about, the benefit for the seller. You, you kind of secure your deal. You kind of, if there's any retrades that aren't really justified, uh, maybe you kind of get rid of that. Uh, and you also just give a lot of confidence to the buyer. So you really help cement your primary contract. Um, and then another situation is for the broker, is if that deal f does fall through, who does that seller client usually blame? They blame the broker. It's like, all right, it's, I could have put a deal together that didn't close and waste my time without your help, Mr. Broker. Um, so now they may not be happy with you. That that's the buyer you chose. And you can't guarantee every buyer is going to close, especially depending on how much demand you have for that particular property at the time. So now if it does fall through, um, now you, there's a buyer with a contract that just steps right up. So the seller can't just be so disgusted with you. You say, all right, I'm, I'm done with you. You're, you're not good enough for me. So there's the uh, advantage for uh, a broker. So I really like backup contracts. I really recommend them to all the parties involved. Uh, and sometimes they're just really easy because maybe the buyer and seller agree on just the same price that the first buyer negotiated. Uh, and it can be kind of a relaxed time to work through an LOI and PSA, purchase sale agreement, and get a deal done. So I like backup contracts. All right, my final myth today. I have a lot of myths, but I'm only gonna share three with you today for your time and my time, and that is this one. No buyer would pay non-refundable earnest money day one when signing a purchase and sale agreement. Um, and I think a lot of us would say, yeah, well, they need a due diligence period, right? Well, a lot of buyers now uh, are putting hard earnest money day one when they sign contracts. And it's just, it's where we are in a lot of markets with a lot of property types. Uh, we're seeing it um, in the southeast with a lot of our multifamily uh, projects that we put on the market. There's just so much demand and competition that to win a deal, buyers are coming in and saying, all right, I'm going to pay half a million dollars or two million dollars or whatever it is of hard earnest money day one. So if it's got clear title, uh, I will close. And if I don't close, the earnest money is forfeited to, to the seller. I've even seen some of these where some of the funds and the earnest money are remitted to the seller right away, which is another dangerous situation uh, that buyers typically don't want to be in. And buyers typically want to be in a situation where they're paying hard earnest money day one before they've been able to do due diligence, property condition assessments and environmental audits and things like that. So uh, who should do it? Who shouldn't? Uh, what are some thoughts around it? Well, one, if you're a very experienced buyer, and you know you have the ability to close, and you know the market really well, and you really like the transaction, maybe you do that to win it. And, but if you're a buyer that hasn't closed, has a lot of experience closing deals, or if you're having to go to investors to improve, to approve the deal, or if you're having to go to a lender to close the deal that you've not closed a loan with before, I would be very careful with hard earnest money because you're also gonna have the cost out for for your third party reports and your due diligence. So you're gonna have some costs anyway. Another myth surrounding um, earnest money is, is, is there a requirement in a contract to have earnest money uh, to be enforceable? 
Um, and some would argue that it does, but some would argue that it doesn't because you could have other considerations cited in the contract to make the contract enforceable. The buyer could put in, hey, for $20 and other valuable consideration, blah, blah, blah. Also, uh, maybe the buyer's uh, spending money for environmental and due diligence and property condition assessments, and maybe they're even going to provide those to the seller. So there could be other ways to cite consideration and make a contract enforceable. So a contract may not have to have earnest money, but earnest money can be a great way uh, to, for buyers to get a seller's attention. So that's kind of another myth that sometimes I hear buyers should put down the lowest amount of earnest money possible. And I see some buyers that do low earnest money and they don't realize how much it works against them. I'll give you an example. I've been in business about five years as a broker um, and a lady was, so I thought I knew everything, right? Of course. Uh, and uh, so this uh, lady was going to make an offer on this property, and I'm taking notes in my conference room, and you ask her the price, blah, 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 time periods, and I said, how much earnest money? She says, a million dollars. And I said, well, you know, that's too much earnest money. You don't have to put down that much. She says, no, that's a million dollars what I'm putting down. And, and I can't remember the size of the deal, but it was roughly two million. It's a small deal. Um, and I said to her again, because I knew everything five years in, right? Uh, I said, uh, you know, that's too much. And she says, uh, look here, Mr. Bull. Now, when you're in your late 20s and somebody calls you Mr. Bull, right? you know, you're, you're in for some schooling. She said, not only is the earnest money going to be a million dollars, when you present my offer, you're going to take my check and you're going to turn it around and you're going to slide it in front of the seller and you're going to show it to him. Because that's the cheapest, easiest way for me to get the seller's attention. I'm like, Yes, ma'am. <laughs> I did it. She did win the deal. Another example had uh, multiple offers on a property, and I represented the seller. And the multiple offers came in, and the offer that was the lowest had a very high earnest money amount. The seller chose the offer with the higher earnest money and a lower price. Even when I tried to explain to the seller um, that, look, these other buyers with higher first, they're very legit, they're very capable. The earnest money sort of blinded the seller. It's like, that just gives me a lot of confidence. No, we're picking that one. So the buyer got the property cheaper than the others because of the high earnest money. Now, you want to make sure you have a good contract, you have a good broker and lawyer involved, um, and that you have uh, well-written contingencies, uh, and that that earnest money is put in a safe place. Um, but I, I've rarely seen in my over three decades of deals that, that, that earnest money went awry. Uh, and I haven't seen that many disputes, just a, a few. So um, earnest money, putting a large amount can be very helpful. Now I think you want to think about too, if you're a seller with, and you're trying to, or demanding hard earnest money for somebody to win a deal or to put your property under contract, do you really want to do it? In some cases you may, but here's some things to think about. One, think about a property that goes to auction where a buyer has to put up non-fundable money uh, up front and then think about a process where maybe there's competing offers and a timeline for, for offers, but the buyers have due diligence. On the auction process, a buyer may have to adjust his price down for, the, for what he doesn't know. He hasn't been through every unit or every part of it. Maybe there's just, so he's got to, to reduce his price potentially for some unknown. So typically, with somebody who's got a full inspection, they're willing to pay a little more. Maybe they've got a loan contingency that you're comfortable with, and they can pay a little more. So I think you want to think about as a seller, is it really in your best interest to demand that? Um, secondly, 
you know, especially if you're a broker and you're, and you're talking about this and you represent the seller or you're involved in it, do you really want a buyer putting hard earnest money down and then later finding out something he doesn't like and then he's trying to blame you or the seller for it? Hey, you guys pushed me to do non-refundable money. You obviously knew this or that. Uh, and I, you know, I'm, I now have a complaint with you. So I think you know, a lot of times as a broker, when a buyer does make an offer with, with no contingencies and time periods, and I represent the seller, I would say, look, we got plenty of buyers. Let's give the buyer at least a week or 10 days or something for full due diligence. Let's make sure he's got all the deliverables. And because if, if there's something he doesn't like, fine, we'll find another buyer. Uh, if we've got other buyers, give them the time period. Uh, and that way, the buyer feels more confident, uh, you, you reduce your transaction risk, um, and you don't have any potential uh, buyer complaining to the seller or the broker uh, after the deal is done. All right, so I don't want to take any more of my time or yours. Those are my three myths. Again, maybe you don't agree with them. Maybe they're not myths. Maybe you think they're true, or maybe you agree with that they're myths, uh, and these conversations help you in your discussions with folks. So I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we'll be back to uh, having a guest on the show I interviewed next week. So until next week, be sure that you always lead, learn, and laugh, and join us for America's Commercial Real Estate Show. America's Commercial Real Estate Show is brought to you by Buxton. Take leasing, site selection, and due diligence to the next level. Make the right decisions with on-demand mobile data. Visit buxtonco.com. By Bull Realty. For proven commercial real estate asset and occupancy solutions, contact me. My email is michael at bullrealty.com. By Commercial Agent Success. Expert-level commercial real estate broker training. Cloud Access 1, up to 21 one-hour videos. Visit commercialagentsuccess.com. Thank you for reviewing, subscribing, and sharing America's commercial real estate show.